I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. The first year of Donald Trump as president has passed, and soon he'll give his first State of the Union address. So what exactly is the state of our union? Today we get the view of someone who has spent a lot of time, some 25 years, reporting on and about Donald Trump. Even if you don't know the name David K. Johnston, and you should, you definitely know who he is. Remember a year ago last March when, for the first time, pages from a Donald Trump tax return were reported? Those pages had been leaked, sent through the mail, to a longtime award-winning investigative journalist who has spent most of his career on two occasionally intertwined topics, the U.S. tax code and Donald J. Trump. They were leaked to David K. Johnston, and that's just one of the topics we covered. David first started reporting on real estate developer Donald Trump in 1988. As David's publisher says about him, quote, no working journalist knows Donald Trump better. So how much of who Trump was has played out in terms of who President Trump is and has been during his first year? How much of this should or could we have seen coming? It's possible the title of Johnston's new book might give away his punchline. It's called, It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. More on David's background. Among other awards, he earned the 2001 Pulitzer Prize for Beat Reporting for exposing loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code. He's won the George Polk Award and the IRE Medal, among other honors. David spent years reporting for the New York Times, Reuters, and elsewhere. He's the past president of the prestigious investigative reporters and editors organization, and currently, among other roles, he's editor-in-chief of DC Report, a nonprofit news service whose mission is to report, quote, what the president and Congress do, not what they say. David has written six other books, including the New York Times bestseller that can be viewed as a prequel to his current book, The Making of Donald Trump. Other books include Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans Enrich Themselves at Government Expense and Stick You with the Bill, and Perfectly Legal, The Covert Campaign to Rig Our Tax System to Benefit the Super-Rich and Cheat Everybody Else. That was a New York Times bestseller on the U.S. tax system and won the IRE 2003 Book of the Year Award. David is a journalist who knows Donald Trump, knows the U.S. tax code, and, as you'll hear, is perfectly unafraid to say exactly what his reporting has led him to believe. But before my conversation with David, one last item. You know I've been making an ask on these podcasts. I hope you like these conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Turns out the ratings really help new listeners find the podcast, and I deeply appreciate that help and support. Thank you. As always, though, my parallel ask, if you don't like the conversations, just forget I ever mentioned it. And a technical note. About five minutes into the call, David and I had to switch from an internet connection to a landline. Don't worry, the audio quality remained fine, and as I think you'll agree, David's content quality was excellent. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with David K. Johnston. David, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate your time. 
Chris, thank you for having me on. So I know, obviously, that any publicity is good publicity, but you quote uh, on the back of your book, and we'll talk about the book and and all sorts of other things as well, obviously. Um, You quote President Trump as saying, I know the reporter is a weird dude who's been following me for 25 years, so obviously he hasn't done so well. He's been following me in a negative fashion for 25 years, always a hit. I And I'm president, so he hasn't done a very good job. I guess we ought to start with a fact check. Are you a weird dude? Uh, not in the least. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a guy who's been married to the same woman for 35 years, live in a suburban house. I have eight grown children who've all done well and five grandchildren, grandsons. Um, and uh, when Donald says things like that about other people, he's really talking about himself. He mm. projects. Very interesting. Although, you know, just again, and in the sense of uh, factual uh, accuracy, in today's world, 35 years, you know, one wife, that's uh, both very, very admirable and might put you into the category of, you know, not, uh, you know, not in the mainstream. That doesn't seem to happen so much anymore. So maybe that'll be the next book you write. We're a little unusual in that I can tell you that as of the day of this interview, let's see, the 22nd, my wife and I have been married 35 years, eight months, three weeks, and one day, not long enough. Oh, that's so nice. Uh, actually, that, that would be a, a great title. I'm telling you, uh, I know you have some experience with bestsellers, but um, uh, how to stay married for 35 years, uh, that's probably, you know, that's one all of us could use. Um, that's That's super. Uh, so let's talk about uh, this other, um, you know, so-called marriage of yours with uh, with Mr. Trump. Twenty-five years is a, thir- you know, it's a long time with one wife, but twenty-five years is a long time to be covering um, one fellow. Um, wh- what got you interested in Donald Trump in the first place? Well, in 1988, I left the Los Angeles Times, where I had investigated the LA Ta- the LAPD, and a bunch of local institutions. The paper did not want to take a hard look at. And I went to Atlantic City for the Philadelphia Inquirer because I believed, as a result of a Supreme Court decision, casino gambling was going to spread across America, which it did. And I wanted to see if New Jersey had really cleaned up the business as they claimed. I met Donald right off, immediately sized him up as a modern P.T. Barnum. Come see the Fiji mermaid and the incredible bearded woman. (laughs) Except P.T. Barnum never hurt anybody. And as I prepared to do my first of many interviews with him, his competitors said to me, well, you know, Donald doesn't know anything about the casino business. And I'm like, what? I mean, he owns two casinos. What do you mean he doesn't know anything about the business? The government regulators would say, Donald is not an operator. And then I got his own guys to tell me, Donald doesn't know about running a casino. He doesn't know anything about the games. All he knows how to do is get uh, attention to the casinos and suck money out of them just as fast as he can. And the first time I sat down for an interview with him a couple of weeks later, it quickly became apparent he didn't know anything about running the casino business. And what was what was interacting with him like at that point? And, and we see how he reacts with people, with media today. Um, what was it like? What was he like with you when, when you would talk with him? What was he like with you when the pieces would get published? I, I assume they weren't puff pieces. Um, what, what was it like interacting with him back then? Well, first of all, Donald could speak in coherent paragraphs, whereas these days, unless he's reading from a script, you'll notice he speaks in word salad and adjectives. This is great, great, terrific, it's beautiful, it's terrific, uh, with no substance. Um, uh, That's different? So that that wasn't always the case? Because, yes, that is. I mean, he would 
he would in the past use lots of adjectives like he does now, but he could string together paragraphs uh, of answers. Um, uh, they might not be you know very deep or anything else, but they were coherent logical mm-hmm. uh, 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 structures. Donald and I are almost the same age, and I observe in him some clear cognitive decline. Now we all have cognitive decline as we get older. When I was a boy, I could repeat up to 17 numbers in reverse order and multiply four digits by four digits in my head. Um, uh, now, if you give me a 10-digit phone number, I write it there. Yeah. But you, I see in Donald this, uh, he, he hasn't recognized people he sees. He, he makes things up, of course, always lately. He was talking about America's sales of the F-52 fighter jet. There is no such fighter jet. Yeah, it's in a video game, and, I think, Call of Duty or something. Right. Yeah. It, it is in a video game. Um um, and, and he's way in over his head, which further contributes to this because he doesn't know any of the specifics. I mean, if suddenly you had to uh, deliver a 30-minute address on something you know nothing about, say um, RNA messenger uh, proteins or uh, a nuclear missile strategy, uh, you, know, you might find yourself speaking like Donald does in vagaries. But the second thing that's significant about then and now is Donald – is the master of fake news. He plants phony stories all over the place. I'm the biggest developer in New York. He's not even close. Um, uh, Madonna and the actress Kim Basinger and the singer and later First Lady of France, uh, Carla Bruni, are all having affairs with me. Not one of them was. He hadn't even met two of them, and the third, Carla Bruni, called him a lunatic. Um, he invents things and he makes them up. And he was used to journalists who just took his word for it and ran with the stories. I am one of those people who, you tell me something, I go check it out. And Donald very quickly uh, realized that he had to be more cautious around me and careful with what he said. And he would call my editors uh, and demand that I be fired. He did it at the Philadelphia Inquirer. He did it at the uh, New York Times. In both cases, uh, I know about it only because other people told me, you know, management always shields you from that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I know he did. In one case, I watched him with an army of lawyers march into the New York Times building and go straight to the executive editor's office, and I knew exactly what he was trying to do. Uh, Donald is used to uh, journalists who take whatever he says and treat it as truth because Donald creates his own reality, Chris. If he says it, that makes it true. And if you don't, Agree with that and accept that. Well, there's something wrong with you. Fake news. So let's turn to the book because it's that's you know that's quite a history and it's a really understandable history. You're an investigative reporter. Uh, he's a, a prominent figure, an interesting figure, um, and and so you had the opportunity to write it. You know, particularly I assume as you you know delved into among you know your various specialties um, areas of the U.S. tax code and and things like that. Um, you know, it's a, it, that's a, a really rich area for investigative reporting. A- and, and this book, which in some ways is a, a you know, follows up uh, the previous book, uh, you know, The Making of Donald Trump, the, your bestseller from, from last year. A- and as I was reading this one, um, I, was, I was trying to get my head around, did you write this to break new news? And, you know, there is a – or rather, did you feel like it's important to have – um, you know, in one place as of this moment, um, the list of ways that, you know, to, to borrow your title, it's even worse than you think. I mean, the, the book feels 
um, like a manifesto of sorts to me. And is that what you was that your goal? Is that what you intended? Do you you know, did, did you see it as right. an investigative? Tell me about that. Well, once Donald got the Electoral College victory, I was very concerned that my peers in journalism wouldn't do a better job than they had in the campaign, where they just failed to tell people about Donald's long criminal behavior and cheating people and all sorts of stuff that was in my book, The Making of Donald Trump, even though I did their homework for him and offered everybody the public documents. So I immediately set out to do a book about what Trump is going to do to our government. Uh, the coverage of the White House has been vastly better than I ever imagined, but as with Michael Wolff's book, it's basically palace intrigue and drama and Donald's erratic behavior. That's sort of entertaining to watch, but what matters is our government and what's happening to you. What is Trump doing? And we don't cover the federal government. There are whole vast agencies that used to have lots of mainstream reporters covering them. Uh, not anymore. Many of them, there's not a single mainstream reporter covering these agencies. So I said, well, let's see what they're doing to the education department, EPA, uh, the labor department, the occupational safety and health, trade, ambassadorships at the State Department, and how it affects you. If Trump has just fallen around the White House, then, you know, we get entertained and life goes on. But that's not what's happening. The Team Trump has loosed what I call political termites into the structure of our government. They are eating away at it. They are helping polluters. They are helping the worst employers in terms of job safety and deaths on the job. They have taken the side of bankers against students who have student loans because, surprise, surprise, who did Betsy DeVos bring into the education department but executives and lobbyists from the student loan companies? Um, uh, they ha have a campaign to does ho will do horrible things to veterans. Uh, my dad was 100% disabled veteran of World War II, so I paid a little bit of attention to that issue. Uh, the Trump administration says that if you're uh, completely disabled and you're getting, say, $35,000 a year of income from the government for your service, when you reach retirement age, they want to cut it to $13,000 and plunge you into poverty. Uh, it's an example of how Trump says one thing, I'm all for the veterans, and then turns around and does another. Um, so that's what I wanted to do, was to tell people what is happening to our government. And the reason I say it's even worse than you think is that, Chris, unless you've – there have been some stories about a few of the things in my book, but many of them know. But most people do not know this. And I know from people who have contacted me since the book came out that they weren't aware of these things. Yeah, you, I mean, you string together, uh, you know, actions and activities and the breaking down of uh, agencies and, and sub-agencies across, as you said, you know, just vast areas, state, interior, EPA, housing, education. I, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's incredibly thorough um, and, and broad on that front. And when you think, and I think you meant it both ways, um, but I'll just, I'll just make sure, um, you know, you, you you certainly home in a bit on the folks at the top, on the Scott Pruitts, at the Betsy DeVos's, right. uh, Ben Carson, et cetera. Um, but but termites, and it's a it's a really vivid image. This concept of political termites. Obviously, they they they're kind of hidden. They come out at certain times. They eat, you know, from the, from the inside, where in, and you don't necessarily see them. And in fact, you, you know, you you don't see them necessarily until you know 
the house falls down. Did you do you mean it in both ways? Do you mean it top down and in you know bottom up or you know inside oh, yeah. out as well? Yeah. You're seeing it both. Chris, ab- Chris, absolutely. First of all, the people that Trump has appointed that we know about. Uh, people like the head of housing and urban development, Ben Carson, uh, Scott Pruitt at EPA, Betsy DeVos. These are the worst people, the most venal people out there. The ancient Greeks had a word for this, cacistocracy, government by the worst among us. I mean, Ben Carson, who was a brilliant uh, surgeon, knows nothing of housing except he lived in public housing as a child. And this is a man who believes that the Egyptian pyramids weren't tombs for pharaohs, but they were built to store grain. Uh, It's the kind of of totally unqualified person that Trump has put into office. Now, the termites are these people whose names, in many cases, nobody's heard of at all. Instead of being run through the normal appointment process in which many of them would have to go before the U.S. Senate and have a confirmation hearing – They're appointed under a law that allows temporary appointments, a law we should have to fill in gaps when there's problems, but they're only supposed to serve 130 days. Well, we're into season two of Trump, the reality White House show, uh, the White House reality show, and some of these people are still there, and Congress hasn't done anything about it. They haven't been vetted. Many of them come directly from the industries that the various agencies regulate, and they come from the worst among those agencies. So they are putting in place rules or stopping existing rules or preventing people from going out in the field to inspect or stopping scientists from doing their work because they want their industries to be able to do whatever they want to do and to heck with your safety, with your welfare with your children's uh, safety and health. And how much, and I want to talk to you about the safety and, and what you write about regarding OSHA and uh, letting some of the rules lapse and, and you know, that's worker protections are um, such an important area. And I, you, you clearly are um, particularly offended by that aspect of what you see going on because of, uh, you know, the claims to, to, you know, want to stand up for the forgotten man. Um, so I want, I want to ask you about that. But what you describe, is that Trump? Who, you know, that's, you got to be really strategic, I would think, in right. terms of having a, a pre-thought-out plan, um, an approach, you know, implementation, execution, uh, you know, all based in a, in a philosophy. And, and I'm, I'm right. not meeting this facetiously. Is is that Trump? Is that his philosophy and his execution? Um, or is that the people that somehow got around him or who he brought around him and, and that's their execution? Donald has, Donald has said his life philosophy is revenge. Um, he doesn't have any public policy position. He has no moral principles. He has no philosophical principles about stuff. It's the people that he brought in who are a bunch of opportunists who see the chance to strip away things like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act that were signed by a Republican president, Richard Nixon. And the people Trump brought in around him are the ones who did the work. Donald, to put public policy and Donald in the same sentence or even paragraph is an absurdity. And when I watch on TV people trying to discern what is Trump's policy interest, This administration is about one thing. 
It is about Donald Trump. It is about the glorification of the genetically superior. Of course, he should be president. World's greatest memory knows more on 20 subjects than anybody else in the world, Donald Trump. And so Steve Bannon and Steve Miller and people like that are brought into the administration. They're the ones who bring with them this cacistocracy of the worst people that are planted throughout the government. Trump, we now know, comes to work at about 11 in the morning and is done by 4 or 4.15, and he takes lunch during that period. This is not somebody who, like every recent previous president you've seen, you know, their hair turns gray and they visibly age right in front of you. Uh, this is a man who spends a third of his days playing golf and hanging out in Mar-a-Lago. And how do you reconcile – there's no question that many Americans, many of them voted for Bernie Sanders um, – we're really frustrated with the state of our government. We're really feeling, you know, and and you know, I think a lot about this stuff. I'm sure you do as well. Um, frustrated with growing inequality. Frustrated over uh, foreign wars and and you know things that we'd been involved in. Frustrated that government wasn't you know making our lives better. That we weren't better off today than we were X years ago, however many years ago. Um, I, I well, know that that's here, not, yeah. So here's how, the here's the irony in that, Chris. Yeah. You know, Donald ran for office saying, "I'm going to drain the swamp." Washington has been taking care of itself, by which he means rich people, and hurting you. Well, everything Donald had in his economic platform comes out of a trilogy of best-selling and award-winning books I wrote, Perfectly Legal, Free Lunch, and The Fine Print. Donald doesn't read books, but I know because of things he said to other people that he watched me on television. And he distilled my economic message, which I said in 2012, anybody who runs for president on the economic policies in this book, these books is going to win – because the 90% of Americans' incomes in 2012 were lower than they were in 1967, the year I graduated from high school. And Donald brilliantly exploited this with slogans and sloganeering, not any deep policy, just slogans and, and uh, the sizzle, not the steak. And I, I'm not the least bit surprised that a lot of people turned to him, and that when he said, I alone can save you, they were thrilled. Now, some of his supporters support him because they're, they're racist. They may even say they're not racist, but they really don't want the civil rights movement. They don't want to have um, you know, a, a Latino next to him on the airplane, an Asian in the cockpit, and God forbid, they don't want to have to report to a black woman boss. That's a core group Donald has clearly appealed to. But the bottom 90% of Americans, I spent all my years at the New York Times documenting how government policy was creating our inequality. And uh, in many ways, I've been their champion, but I didn't do what Donald did, which is he said he would go and work on behalf of the forgotten man. And as soon as he took the oath of office, he forgot the forgotten man and turned on the forgotten man. And I know, I know you feel that I, and, and, you know, the, the, maybe this is the time to talk about, uh, you know, the OSHA example. Um, but oh, that's but, a good example. Are, are the folks, I mean, do you, you know, is your point of view that the folks who, you know, are in that class and that the, the folks, the, the workers of, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, who, you know, who voted, did they get, are they, are they fooled? I mean, are they necessarily un, unhappy? Uh, you know, 
they're they're getting a tax break. I mean, they're getting uh, culturally, they're they're getting um, you know a lot of what they may have wanted. Maybe they wanted more conservative um, judges on the federal bench. Maybe they wanted um, Gorsuch. Maybe religiously, they're they're happy with you know a move of of Jerusalem to you know the capital moving there. I, so I'm trying not to fully dismiss their points of view or, or no, think that I, I they just got... No, I don't want to dismiss got... their point of view at all. Chris, I don't right. want to dismiss their point of view at all. I think the people who, the 62 million Americans who voted for Trump, they wanted change. They yeah. saw a candidate they didn't think was going to do anything for them, even though if you read her policy paper, she said she was. And they believed when Donald Trump said what he said. And of course, because of the failures of my peers in journalism, they had no idea about his involvement with mobsters and drug dealers and Italian, I mean, the Russian mobsters and cheating and ruining small businesses and swindling people because that wasn't covered with any significance or depth. But they have real grievances and they have lots of different ones. You know, if you bought a home in Michigan, um, as I did 45 years ago, it's worth less money today when you adjust for inflation than it was back then. Uh, that's a stunning development. Um, in this country. And and wages have gone down. That's why uh, up until 2000, uh, through 2012, wages were down. They started growing under Obama in 2013. They grew a lot in 14 and 15. Um, but they didn't make up for a half century of not getting anywhere. And um, many people accepted at face value Trump's assertion that he's a Christian. Had they read my uh, biography of him, they would know that he calls anyone who turns the other cheek uh, a fool and an idiot. Uh, so he has utter contempt for Christians. His personal philosophy is revenge, and he has written and given speeches and been videotaped over long periods of time talking about how it gives him pleasure to destroy the lives of other people. Well, none of those are Christian values. And then we can get into all the business about paying off Playboy playmates and porn stars and stuff for illicit uh, uh, affairs. Uh, it, it, people were sold a package on Donald Trump, and that package looked appealing to them, and it made sense for them to vote for him. And they have real grievances. The problem is things are worse for them. You brought up the tax cut. Um, more than 80% of the tax cut goes to the 1%, and the majority of that goes to people who make over $2 million a year. That's one in a 1,000 households. People are going to see a little bit of money in their paycheck soon, $10, $20, $30 a week. If you haven't had a raise for years, that's wonderful, and your family needs that money. Here's the problem. The government is going to start cutting the programs that help you and your family. We've already heard Orrin Hatch, the conservative Utah Republican, is the longest-serving senator and who, with Ted Kennedy, sponsored the Children's Health Insurance Program in 1995, CHIP, which is for uh, children who have serious health needs, whose parents make more money than would qualify for welfare, but not enough to get health insurance. Yep. And what does Orrin Hatch say? Well, there's no money for it anymore. I mean, we had money back then, but there's no money anymore. This is Orrin Hatch who just voted for a bill that's going to have the government borrow $1.5 trillion to finance tax cuts for rich people. Uh, we can afford tax cuts for billionaires. And by the way, additional subsidies to personal jets. 
They've expanded the subsidies to personal jets in here, and they've extended new interest-free loans to corporations through the tax system, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of interest-free loans. But we don't have money to take care of the health needs of poor and middle or working class children. Uh, There's a word for that, evil. Do you think that the workers, you know, will there be pushback? You know, do you think that this is something, you know, you're you're arguing that 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 folks got fooled, that we all got fooled yeah, or, or whoever. They did. They, yeah. they got they, they got taken. They acted in their own best interest, as I would expect them to do. But they got taken. Here's the problem they're going to run into. You're going to get a, a, a more money in your paycheck starting in February or March. Yep. You're going to vote in November. Then you're going to find out in future years how badly you got hurt. If you're in a state where you were deducting your state and local income taxes, which means you probably make over $75,000 a year, which is only one in four workers, um, you're going to discover that you're worse off, not better off. Roughly one in six taxpayers will be worse off. So the majority are going to be ahead. But then you're going to find out they're going to start cutting programs. Trump ran for office saying he would never cut Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid. Well, they've already made, started making moves to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. As I mentioned earlier, they want to cut veterans and put 100% disabled veterans, once they reach retirement age, into poverty. They even, they're, they're, they're so pursuant of this, not Trump, but the people, the team around him loose, they want to round down checks that go to veterans. Now, it's not a lot of money, $12 million a year, I think. But just think about the the... the you know, the the symbolism of that. I'm the champion of the veterans. The new tax bill, if you're a police officer or a firefighter or any other first responder and had to buy your own uniforms, which is the norm, you got to deduct that as a reasonable cost of uh, earning a living. Yep. That's taken away from you now. You can't dry clean your uniform and put it on your tax return. You have to buy a gun and bullets. You don't get to deduct that anymore. How is this showing your love and support, Donald Trump, to the police officers you claim to care about? What do you think when you got his tax return last summer? Oh, it was last March. Last um, March. Well, I was I was standing on the intercoastal waterway with my uh, cell phone, shooting a picture of Mar-a-Lago for this book, to and I could remember some details. And it went. My phone went off, and. Um, one of my grown children said, I'm urgent, you got to look at your email. And so I click open my email on the little screen, and lo and behold, here's Donald Trump's 2005 tax return. It says client copy. So it's not from an IRS record or somewhere else. It's his copy. And I had two immediate thoughts. Is this for real? He the document. And who else has this? Is it just me or, or somebody else have it? I don't know who has it, which means i got to rush to get it into print. Well, the White House confirmed the authenticity of the document. Um, and um, what it showed makes perfect sense to me that I believe Donald sent it to me, and I believe I know why. It showed an enormous income, $153 million, although Trump went on Tucker Carlson on Fox and claimed it showed $250 million. Typical exaggeration by him. But it showed $153 million of income in 2005, and it showed he paid about 22% of that in income taxes. What Donald didn't think through is, I'm a worldwide recognized authority on taxes. My next book is proposing an entirely new tax system for the U.S., much simpler, easier, and more effective. And I recognize that 
it's only because of a backup tax called the alternative minimum tax that he paid much. He wants to get rid of that backup tax, the AMT. Yep. If you get rid of that tax, Donald Trump's tax rate on $153 billion was less than 3.5%. And that's a very important number because the poorest half of Americans who filed tax returns that year paid more than 3.5%. So Donald Trump believes that on his income of almost $3 million a week, he should be taxed more lightly than people who make $300 a week on average. And by the way, the, the AMT tax he paid is refundable to him the next year or in subsequent years as he uses it up. Yeah. And that's what made that tax return significant. And of course, Donald then you know, went and said, I'm a reporter nobody ever heard of. Well, I didn't get into this to be famous, but as I pointed out at the time, it's been five or six years since I have walked through an airport in the United States, Canada, uh, the UK, or Germany without strangers recognizing me. And on that very day that he tweeted that, families at JFK Airport stopped, wanted me to uh, meet their children and shoot pictures of them. A janitor ran over and threw her arms around me. And I was stopped repeatedly on the way to my gate, which was literally the very last gate at Terminal 4. Uh, that's very funny. So, so two questions. Maybe this is the, uh, you know, the, the old journalist in me. Why did the White House confirm the document? And maybe that's part of what leads to the second one. Why do you think uh, Donald Trump sent it to you? Well, I, um, I don't know why they confirmed the document except – they concluded it was in their interest to do so. I mean, if they had, if they declined to confirm it, they said, we're not going to comment about it. Yeah. John Spicer never got back to me. He went and gave photocopies of the document I sent him. And as you know, as a journalist, for a PR person to do that is considered one of the most disreputable things you can possibly do. Uh, but they concluded it was in their interest to put it out there, which further, in my mind, lends credence to the idea that Donald wanted it out there. Um, uh, what was the second part about? Well, that that was what makes you feel that uh, he was the one who, that Donald Trump was the one who oh, sent it to you. Yeah, and that the fact that they confirmed it. If they hadn't confirmed yeah. it, I would have written a much more tentative story about it. And by the way, the story did not break on Rachel Maddow. We broke the story at my nonprofit, non-advertising public service website, DC Report, where a bunch of people volunteer. Uh, and then I was what's called in TV, as you know, the get. Yes, you are. And I, next... and I went on Rachel, and then I mean I was all over the place. I was on ABC, yeah, and the next CNN, day. the next yes. morning, yes. and everywhere. But we decided that Rachel would be the best place for us to go, so that's why we did it on her show. And uh, I expect you to reveal everything to me now. Um, are, are you still reporting out the tax story, or do you kind of have to wait by your mailbox and uh, wait wait for other returns to come in? Well, you know, my entire career, back to 1966, I've always had my name in the phone book. And even when I was writing about cops in L.A. who were killing people and and vicious criminals, and I had little children at home, I have eight children all grown now, I always had my home phone number and my home address in the phone book. And it paid off from time to time. I would get something, as I say, over the transom. Something anonymous would come in the mail. Uh, one of my books, I wrote a note saying, because somebody sent me two banker's boxes of internal records from a government agency, uh, if they're complex documents, please include a primer so you can understand what they mean and figure them out. <laughs> yeah. But I've always, I, I don't understand these journalists who, you know, you call a big newspaper and you try to reach some journalists and, and you can't get to them. 
like you should be working hard to make yourself available to people. And that's maybe where uh, I'll, I'll close out my conversation with you is on the state of journalism. Um, you, you know, you've said you've you've been doing this uh, a, a while. You served at at one point as president of uh, IRE, investigative reporters and editors, one of the you know the, the most prominent uh, organization grouping of yeah. uh, investigative reporters yeah. um, uh, and editors. Uh, the state of journalism and um, and fake and, and the claims of fake news. What's your prescription? How, how does that get combated? To what extent are journalists complicit? What, to what extent has the last twenty years of of journalism been part of the problem? And and you know how, how does it get how does it get combated? Well, clear back to a man named Reed Irvine and accuracy in media in the 1970s. There has been a sustained, well-financed attack on honest journalism. Uh, Accusations that people who do the kind of work I do um, aren't telling the truth, even though you don't get to publish or get on the air unless you can prove everything down to the commas you're using is correct. And... um, that movement has grown. Um, we have the Nixon administration, you know, nattering nabobs of negativism line written by William Sapphire uh, for Vice President Agnew. Yep. And many Americans have come to believe that journalists are all liars. I mean, I've literally had people ask me, why do I want to bring Sharia law to America? Just completely crazy things. Yeah. And so there's a real problem with people not trusting the organizations they should trust who use verifiable information. That's why I have pages and pages of, of source notes in my books, and I put my personal email in, and I say, if you find an error, let me know. It will be promptly corrected and forthrightly corrected. I saw that. Nobody's it's right, it's, it's right nope. in the back of your book. I saw that right, uh, right at the, the notes right. or the acknowledgment section. Right. And nobody's reported any errors in either of the two Trump books. Um, So that's one side. Secondly, the fastest disappearing white-collar job in America in this century is journalists. Newsrooms have 40% fewer journalists today than they did at the turn of the century. So lots of work doesn't get done. Uh, Just read the New York Times every day. They got rid of most of the copy editors. So you see these hilarious little things that show up every day, uh, some of them mildly obscene unintentionally, because there's no copy editor paid to, you know, carefully scrutinize every little element to make sure it's right. Um, Investigative reporting is not the problem. I I would like to see 10 times as much investigative reporting as we have, but there is a lot of investigative reporting going on. Investigative reporters and editors' membership is 50% bigger now than it was 10 years ago. It's beat reporting that has taken the hit. There are city councils of good-sized cities in America and county boards of supervisors or legislatures or freeholders, depending where you live, that haven't seen a reporter in years, school boards that nobody covers. And that is a paradise for corrupt politicians because nobody's paying attention. When the L.A. Times uh, won the Pulitzer Gold Medal, the biggest award in journalism for the town of Bell, a little, poor, blue-collar suburb of, I think, 40,000 people, where the city manager was getting $800,000 a year and the police chief $500,000 a year. All of that was done in the open because no journalist had attended a city council meeting in decades. And so journalists are complicit to that extent. And, then, and one of the ways they've 
business has dealt with less money is you cover the sizzle. You cover Trump's tweets. You don't cover what he does. That requires more skill. It takes more time. That's the thing I've made a mission for myself and for the friends who work with me at DC Report and in this book. It's even worse than you think. Yeah. What's going on in our government? That's where we need more journalism. Yeah, well, it's a it's a terrific mission, and thank you for doing that. And yes, I agree, and that that's kind of where my own thinking goes, and and where the question the the decline in in covering agencies and sub agencies and digging through and digging through OSHA records and and doing that type, it, it does exist, but um, it it doesn't it feels like it doesn't exist to the extent that you did, and and you're totally right on uh, you know the decline of local news. Um, and, and, you know, county governments and city governments not getting uh, the type of coverage that, uh, you know, that they did once upon a time. And um, uh, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the, the hard work of journalism, the hard work of reporting could go a long way and would go a long way um, towards really, uh, you know, addressing these, these claims and, and turning things around. Um, David, thank you. Thank you for your time and uh, thank you for discussing uh, the book and journalism and uh, the state of our world today. I appreciate it. Chris, thank you very much. That was my conversation with David K. Johnston. My thanks to David for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.